Yes, it is, it's good, uh, I think, to bring this sermon forward a week, even though the circumstances are quite sad. Um, but uh, I'm very happy to bring it forward, not only because it gives me a ready-made excuse if things go badly here. Look, I had one week less than I thought I uh, was supposed to have. But also because this is an Advent sermon. This is a sermon to prepare us for this season of Christmas. And just as if you are a, a sane and well-adjusted human being, uh, you will put up your tree uh, on the 1st of December tree, and no later. Uh, on the 1st um, of so December also it's good and to no later. Our minds. Um, so also it's good to prepare our minds. This can pass you by. You, can, you actually end up not making the most of this season of Christmas, which you know, obviously we're not commanded to do anything with Christmas, but uh, it can be really beneficial, a great time to think about the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God in the person of Christ. But in all the busyness, you let that pass you by if you don't actually prepare your mind. So that's what we're doing today. And we're starting uh, today by looking at this topic of the exaltation. And I want to put to you today from various passages that actually, in the end, what we see is that it is precisely the humility of Christ that has been exalted. And if that doesn't make sense now, I hope that does make sense as we go along. We're going to um, be focusing really on Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible uh, there, um, please open it up. If you don't, please get one. Um, because we'll also be taking some short missionary So you'll need good dexterity in your digits to hold on to all of those pages as we go. Uh, let's, let's dive straight in. So Philippians 2, verse 1 to 4. This will read slightly differently. I'm in the ESV. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Being in full accord and of one mind. selfish ambition or Do nothing. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. My son Wesley has a very acute trait at the moment. He'll pick up uh, a Gideon's Bible that we have at home and pretend to read from it. And whenever he does that, all he says over and over again is, be kind to people, be kind to people. Um, and I'm not entirely sure where he's picked up such a moralistic version of Christianity so early on, but it is reflective, isn't it, of how a lot of people see um, the Christian faith, and at this time of year, um, if any lip service is paid to the Christian origins of Christmas at all, people will say, yeah, it's all basically, the, at the end of the day, it's about being kind to people, right? That's pretty much the gist. And there is a lot that, I mean, kindness has never been uh, out of favour in our culture, you know? People have bumper stickers, embrace kindness, just be kind. Um, and even though we want to say to people, of course, Christianity is about a lot more than being kind, even if you just take that command, be kind to people, it's actually not, a, not an easy thing to do at all, is it? It's simple. It's not easy. It's actually very complex. It's actually ve it's not complex. It's simple. Uh, but it's, it's actually uh, very difficult to do. It's very, very hard. Um, and we can, um, I think, sometimes pass over verses like this, these first four verses in Philippians 2, almost as if it just says, you know, be kind to people. Um, and you go, okay, yeah, that's easy, you know. Now move on with the other stuff. But when you examine them closely, you recognise just how hard these passages, uh, this passage is to live out. How hard it is for us in a church like this to be of one mind. Don't you find that even though we share 99% of what we hold dear in life in common, 
It's very easy to actually focus on that 1% that divides us. Uh, it's not easy to actually do nothing, as Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit. Imagine that. You lay aside that desire in you for self-promotion. You lay that entirely aside, and your whole motivation doesn't stem from that at all in all that you do. And most difficult of all, perhaps, to consider others more significant than yourself. That actually, as you look at the people around you, regardless of whether you deem them to be better than you or worse than you, uh, more competent than you or less competent than you, it doesn't actually matter about them. Paul says whoever they are, if they're in Christ, you are to consider them more significant than yourself, more worthy to be served than yourself. So these are very, very hard commands, although they are simple. And therefore, Paul, in a very characteristic way, he will undergird and support this very simple command with some of the most complex <laughs> and loftiest uh, theology that he can muster. This is, uh, there's just some beautiful stuff to follow about Christ, stuff that has uh, inspired poets and, and songwriters through the ages, right, to make, write some beautiful music. Things also in here that have, um, that have got theologians sort of puzzled and writing whole academic tomes on what these words mean. Every single line in this is contested and argued about. But it's all in support of a very simple command to actually prefer one another's needs to our own, as we sung before. So let's, let's dive into um, this beautiful passage about Christ. Verse 5 there. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and we'll stop there. That's where we begin. Jesus in the form of God. Um, the, the New Testament, of course, affirms to us that Jesus uh, should be thought of as God, right? And we have explicit um, verses to that, um, to that effect. But actually, more often than explicit sort of times in which Jesus is called God, you get a lot of the time the New Testament just sort of seamlessly quoting Old Testament passages about Yahweh, about the God of Israel, and applying them to Jesus, almost without comment, without often even saying that's what they're doing. They just seamlessly, it seems so natural for them to do that. We, we get one incidentally at the end of this passage, verse 10 and 11, comes from Isaiah 45, and he's actually referring to God there, that every tongue will confess to God. Uh, every knee will bow before God, before Yahweh, and now applied here to Jesus without comment. And it's one of these sorts of passages that actually helps us to understand what Paul means here when he says that Jesus existed in the form of God. Uh, so this is our first flip. Keep your finger in, uh, in Philippians and move back to John chapter 12 with me. John chapter 12, I sort of wish we could spend more time here because it actually maybe more than a lot of passages, really brings out our theme for today. But we, we only have time to really touch on the, the final part of it. So John chapter 12, verse 37, speaking about Jesus. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is the important verse, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
So John is saying that actually these two quotes, there are two quotes there from the book of Isaiah, from different sections of the book of Isaiah. And he is telling us that Isaiah said those things when he actually saw Jesus and spoke of him. And when we turn back to uh, the book of Isaiah, actually what we find is John is not just quoting these sort of randomly and going, this helps my point. Actually, he's quoting these in context because in both cases, those quotes come after a vision that Isaiah has of someone that he refers to as glorious. And so this is actually something that's going on in the book of Isaiah that John has picked up on. So uh, that second quote there uh, is from Isaiah 6. So let's go back again, uh, back to Isaiah chapter 6. Our um, our, uh, passage is quoted in, in verse 10 there. That's where John gets his statement from. And before that, we get the vision. So Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So this is um, perhaps the most um, exalted vision that we get actually of God himself in the Old Testament. And John unblushingly says, this is Christ. That one on the throne that Isaiah saw was Christ, the Son of God. And we learn then um, a lot about Jesus just from this song of the seraphim. Firstly, they say of Jesus, holy, holy, holy. Now, when we refer to ourselves as holy, we're called saints, which means holy ones. And when we refer to ourselves as holy, um, we often define that as, you know, we're set apart. We look like other human beings, but we're set apart. And that's a, a good definition, but it doesn't work very well when applied to God. Because God has always been holy, but God has not always been set apart. Because he was holy before there was a creation for him to be set apart from. So there must be something more significant in his holiness than being set apart. That's a secondary thing. The primary thing in God's holiness is actually the primary part of holiness for us as well, is what we are set apart for. Which is that we are set apart to be devoted to God. So what does it mean then to speak of God being devoted to God? Well, here's where um, Sinclair Ferguson is very helpful. Uh, He has a great book about um, our own holiness called um, Devoted to God. And and in that uh, book, he says this. What is God's holiness? What do we mean when we say Holy Father and Holy Son and Holy Spirit and Holy Trinity We mean the perfectly pure devotion of each of these three persons to the other two. We mean the attribute in the Trinity that corresponds to the ancient words that describe marriage. Take note, Jen and Pete. Forsaking all other and cleaving only unto thee. Absolutely, absolute, permanent, exclusive, pure, irreversible and fully expressed devotion. So even God is devoted to God. And it's interesting that to talk meaningfully about then God's holiness, 
we start to have to talk in Trinitarian terms, that these two persons devoted to the other one. You, you can't have devotion in a person if you don't have that dynamic going on of relationship. And so because God is devoted to himself, then as he creates, he is set apart. Such is the purity of that devotion. He is set apart from uh, all that he has created in terms of his holiness. And you see in the Isaiah passage then that there is a terrifying purity to that holiness, isn't there? Such that these uh, heavenly beings, these seraphim, even though they are unfallen, unstained by sin, still they cover their faces in the presence of such holiness. And you see even more pronounced Isaiah, a sinner in the presence of God. He just thinks, I should not be here. This is, this is not where I should be. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah's response there in verse 5 is typical of human beings in general when they come into the presence of Jesus in the scriptures. We've got to remember that even though we are tempted to think of Jesus only in earthly terms as we imagine him, we think about him with his disciples walking along dusty roads and teaching and so on. But we've got to remember that it was actually only 33 years in the span of Jesus' whole existence that you could simply sidle up to him and have a conversation, right? That was 33 years. The rest of the time, if you came into his presence, you responded as Isaiah did. And so John, you know, the apostle at the Last Supper, he is able to uh, rest his head on Jesus' chest and ask him intimately a question. And then just a few years later, he sees Jesus again at the start of Revelation, now the glorified Jesus, now the real Jesus, and he falls down dead. He can't even speak. He can't even get up. This is what it is to come into the presence of the glorious Jesus. So he is holy, holy, holy. And then secondly, the seraphim say, verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. Here's how um, John Piper defines uh, glory. I thought this was interesting. God's glory is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. I think that's an amazing insight because that's exactly what we see in this passage, isn't it? They can't look upon the holiness of God. And yet they say, you actually can't not look upon the glory of God because the whole earth is full of it. We've got to recognize, um, even though we've inherited certain, a certain way of thinking about our universe, we don't live in a mindless and mechanical universe, do we? We don't live in a universe just running on certain natural laws. We actually live in a universe personally created by Jesus Christ, personally upheld by Jesus Christ, personally stamped uh, with Jesus' own image all over the place. And therefore, at every second, according to what the seraphim say here, at every second, our senses are perceiving some aspect of the glory of Christ. When you, uh, you know, gaze at the stars, when you smell some freshly ground coffee, when you listen to a beautiful melody, you know, when you feel a gentle breeze, when you eat a steak, all of these actually speak to you of the glory of Jesus. What you are seeing, what you are smelling, what you are hearing is the glory of Jesus because this whole earth is full of it. You can't not see it if you have eyes to see. So um, that's Isaiah's first vision of glory. Come back to John 12 if you've still got your finger in it, which I haven't. Um, John chapter 12. And we sort of understand, don't we, 
um, that, that vision of glory, okay, there you get this, the brightness of the light. That I can't look upon this God. He's so high and lifted up, so lofty. We understand that. But the first passage that John quotes from Isaiah is not from Isaiah 6. It's not from anything like Isaiah 6. It's from Isaiah 53. Uh, and in Isaiah 53, again, Isaiah sees a vision of someone glorious. In fact, he uses the exact same words that he used to describe God in that passage. He starts, Behold, uh, this is verse, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. So again, a vision of an exalted person. But then he goes on, verse 14, As many shall be astonished at him. His appearance was so marred beyond that of human semblance and beyond that of the likeness of the children of men. And as we, I'm sure most of us know, that goes on to just describe the most horrific scene, now not of God on the throne, now of a man who is rejected by his people, who is bearing uh, in the eyes of his people the curse of God and who dies alone, who dies uh, rejected, suffering and, uh, and in anguish. And Isaiah says, this too is glorious. This too is the glory of Christ. But it's a very different kind of exaltation. So th that brings us to our, um, our next part. We've said glory, now we go to humility. Come back to Philippians 2. Humility. We may as well start again from verse 5 there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we get, amazingly, insight into not just what Jesus did for us, but what Jesus was thinking. Isn't that interesting? He did not consider, that's a thinking word, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, this is a highly debated little section. Um, and you actually would have heard, if you were paying attention, in Laura's reading, I think that was from the NIV, had a, a very different reading. It was, uh, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The King James will say, did not consider that, um, to b that being equal with God robbery. So these are all very different kind of renderings. Literally, it just says, being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God robbery or seizing. And so you've got to sort of fill in what, what exactly is meant by that. And I actually, and this will surprise some of you who know me, I think the NIV reading is really good on this, as I've sort of uh, looked into it, that actually it's, it's not so much about Jesus saying, I am equal with God and now I'm going to put aside that equality with God and become less than equal with God. But it was actually about what Jesus did with his equality with God. And so the Bible commentator Gordon Fee puts it like this. Equality with God is something that was inherent to Christ in his pre-existence. Nonetheless, God-likeness, contrary to common understanding, did not mean for Christ to be a grasping, seizing being, as it would have been for the gods and lords whom the Philippians had previously known. It was not something to be seized upon to his own advantage, which would be the normal expectation of lordly power and the nadir of selfishness. I had to look that up. That's the lowest point, like the opposite of the pinnacle. Maybe you guys already know that. Rather, his equality with God found its truest expression when he emptied himself. 
And I think that actually fits very well with the context here. It fits very well with what we've seen before in verse 3. Because remember, this is supporting the kind of attitude we are supposed to have. And uh, in that passage, you know, Paul's not saying we're unequal with one another in the church. But he, he is saying that nonetheless, we are to live out our equality, not by grasping things from one another, but actually by giving of ourselves to one another, by considering one another better. And it fits actually well with what follows as well in verse 7, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But verse 7, he emptied himself. That's the contrast, right? He didn't take something for himself. He emptied himself of something. He's not a grasping, seizing being. In what sense did he empty himself? Well, I could get into a whole can of worms there as well. But I think from the context here, it's not that he's, he's emptied himself of his divinity. He's not emptied himself of being God. But he's emptied himself, it seems, of his status. Look again at verse 7 there. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what we see then in this passage is remarkably how Jesus descends every single rung of human status that could possibly be imagined. Firstly, he goes from being God to being human. This glorious God uh, to being a human being, uh, looking just like the rest of us. I don't know if you're uh, the same as me, but I find it very hard to keep a secret that makes me look good. Have you found that? If you've done something that makes you look good or you know something or, you, you know, there's something in you, it's very hard if that topic is coming up in conversation to just sort of hold that back. But Jesus, he, he had that glory that we saw, glory that made Isaiah cower in his presence. And yet he kept it veiled. He kept it covered for the entire 33 years of his life. He was very content for simply his father to know who he was for him to know who he was, and then at various different points, very carefully, for his disciples to know that. But he was content, wasn't he, to be born in, in uh, you know, fairly uh, insignificant circumstances, to be questioned by the Pharisees, to be doubted by his disciples, to be denied by Peter, to be betrayed by Judas, and all without ever sort of turning the cards around and saying, do you not know who I am? You see, humility for Jesus, this humility that we speak of, it wasn't a one-time decision, I'm going to come to earth and be a human being. It was an everyday restraining, every conversation restraining of his glory. Such was his humility. But he didn't just become a human, you see here. He became a slave, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant or slave, being born in the likeness of man. You see, again, Jesus could have chosen, um, even in becoming a human, he could have chosen lots of different roles couldn't he he could have chosen to be an exalted human a king a lord something like this and still it would be a step down but jesus actually chose to describe himself with a term that meant he had no rights and no reputation he identified with the slaves of the day and that's a beautiful thing that's a wonderful uh, truth about the incarnation as we think about this theme in christmas that wherever you find yourself on the social ladder Wherever you find yourself in terms of your significance or lack thereof, Jesus identifies with you in that place. So that if you have power, okay, Jesus knows what it is to wield power justly. But if you have no power and no significance and you feel like no one cares and you're, you're responsible for nothing, well, Jesus knows about that too. He became the slave. He became the servant of all. And even then as a human, verse 8, he humbled himself. Verse 8. Being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' humility was manifested in his obedience? Obedience is a hard word for us to hear, I think, often, especially when we're talking about being equal with someone else. To, to obey someone that you perceive yourself to be equal with, it, it seems like something that just shouldn't happen, that you shouldn't have to do. And yet, Jesus, being equal with God, we see that on every page of the Gospels, it is marked by his obedience, isn't it? I do only what the Father tells me to do. That's all I do. He just tells me to do it, and I do it, and I do it fully, and I do it exactly. And that obedience uh, actually then reaches its climax in Gethsemane. We sung the words before, where as he's cry- uh, weeping and as uh, the, he's sweating like drops of blood, he says, not my will, but yours be done. That's the ultimate act of obedience, right? Obedience to the point of the shedding of his blood. And in death then, he's emptied completely. We're now down at this bottom rung, right? Now he's dead. Now he's completely empty. But actually, it's only the second last rung on the ladder down because Paul says, remarkably, even death on a cross. It's almost like he can't believe it. That even in death, Jesus surrendered his right to dignity. Even in death, he didn't just die a a normal death. He died uh, as a criminal. He died with you know, just about everyone in the world thinking he was dying under the just curse of God. And there then we get the ultimate contrast, right, between the beginning of this passage and the end. Jesus who existed in the form of God. Jesus who was surrounded by seraphim, crying out, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory, now hung up as a man, naked on the cross, now spat upon and mocked by the soldiers around him. This was the length of his humility. But we don't end there. We get to exaltation. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, sometimes this passage is sort of described in pictorial, pictorial terms as like Jesus descending down one sort of mountain, down in, into the valley, and then he sort of ascends back up the other side, and there's a sort of symmetry to it. But it's not actually that symmetrical when you read it. Actually, the first um, eight verses describe Jesus at, from the point of view of Jesus, right? What he was thinking, what he was feeling, what he thought. And you do get this really rugged descent. It was nothing, none of this was easy. All of this was arduous, this descent down this cliff face to the bottom. But then in the valley, the, um, the point of view actually switches to the Father. Now we're not talking about Jesus' actions anymore. Now we're talking about what God does. And it's almost as if God um, brings a helicopter down and lifts him back up to the top. That's what we see. What that tells us is again that there's this mutual self-giving in God, in the Trinity. It's a beautiful thing that the Son, to begin with, freely submits to the Father. Nothing in those early verses mentions the Father putting any pressure on the Son or commanding the Son, you know. He, He willingly obeys. He willingly comes. He voluntarily comes of his own volition. But after he is voluntarily submitted to the Father, then the Father 
voluntarily and freely honours the Son. Isn't that a beautiful picture of self-giving? And note there that we don't see the simple resumption of Jesus' former glory at that point. It's not as if he goes from, you know, God-worshipped, form of God, becomes a man, and then after the 33-year experiment of being a human is over, he sheds that skin that confined him, he puts it all away, and he becomes God again. That's very importantly not what happened. What happened was that Jesus was permanently marked by his act of humility. He still bears his human name, Jesus, but that name is now being glorified, Lord Jesus, the name that is above every name. He still bears his human body. Um, Again, glorified. When he appeared to the disciples, they could see who he was, but his body was different. And then he ascended in that body back to the Father. He still bears his human body. Calvin says, God exalted his own son in the same flesh in which he had lived in the world, abject and despised. And amazingly, he still bears the scars. The scars of his ultimate humility, he still bears, such that Thomas could say, you know, I want to put my finger through his scars in his hands, and then I'll believe. And Jesus comes and mercifully says, here I am, you know. Such that John, when he sees Jesus even in heaven, he describes him not simply as a lion, not simply as a lamb, but as a slain lamb. And the heavenly host praise him because he was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. So that the hymn puts it beautifully, crown him with many crowns. It says, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Jesus didn't go from glory to humility and back to glory. He went from glory to humility to exalted humility, to glorified humility. And now that humble cross, an instrument of torture, an instrument of shame, now is held up in the universe as the symbol of victory, as the symbol of glory. Because God in his wisdom chose to shame uh, the wisdom of the world. And now the principle is fixed forever in the universe, the principle that Jesus actually taught, that the greatest of all, the most glorious of all, is the servant of all. That the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, what are our marching orders this Christmas? Firstly, Jesus' glorious humility deserves to be loved. All that he suffered, all that we spoke of, He suffered for uh, ill-deserving, for even hell-deserving sinners. We in this room, not one of us deserved what he brought. In fact, we deserve the exact opposite. But he suffered it for us willingly, nonetheless. And so this Christmas, meditate upon these truths, rejoice in these truths. And secondly, Jesus' glorious humility deserves not just to be loved, but to be lived. And that's the context of this passage, isn't it? That Paul tells us to have this mind among ourselves, the mind of Jesus among ourselves in all of our relationships. In the church here, we're to have one mind, Jesus' mind. In our marriages, we should demonstrate equality with one another, not by what we can get from one another, not by I did it last time, now it's your turn, but we demonstrate equality with one another by self-giving, 
We demonstrate equality with one another as the Father and the Son demonstrate equality with one another. I give first and then you give. And we should demonstrate this mind as well among our friends and family as we meet together over this period. That we should consider one another more significant than ourselves. Consider one another more worthy of service, just as Jesus, though in the form of God, considered us worthy of service. And there is a glorious promise here, isn't there? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. God is so giving that even the mind that we are to have is already a gift from him to us. It's already yours. Simply live it out in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the assurance that you are here in our midst. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your humility. Uh, We praise you, Lord, that you didn't leave anything um, behind. You saw what we needed. You came down from heaven. You humbled yourself to become a human being. And even as a human being, you humbled yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that now you are exalted and exalted in your humility that you have given us now this lesson to learn, that we are to humble ourselves so that we will be exalted, not to exalt ourselves lest we be humbled. And so, Lord, I pray, firstly, that you would help us, Lord Jesus, just as you called Paul to, you called Paul to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages and generations in God. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to search out the unsearchable riches of yourself. That this Christmas, that would be our meditation. Those would be the words on our lips. And we pray as well, Lord, for lives that reflect yours. This is a beautiful thing. We can sit back and we can hear of it and we can love it, Lord. Um, But it is so difficult to emulate it. And so, Lord, we pray that by your spirit within us, having given us this mind among ourselves, we pray that we'd have one mind, your mind, and that we'd consider one another as more significant than ourselves, that we would humble ourselves and be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.